This podcast is a frank discussion on sexual assault. If you are in the USA for free and confidential help, call 1-800-865-HOPE in Australia for confidential counseling and support in cases of sexual assault or abuse. Please call 1-800-RESPECT. Hello and welcome to Open Stance. This is Tracy Smith, and today I am joined by Dr. Patricia Riesick, a global expert on post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Patricia Riesick is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University. Prior to Duke, Dr. Riesick was the director of the Women's Health Sciences Division at the National Center for PTSD. Dr. Riesick is globally recognized for her profound contributions to the field of psychiatry and mental health treatments and is credited with developing cognitive processing therapy. CPT is proven to be one of the best treatments available for PTSD. This is a critically informative discussion from a leading expert on what exactly happens in the brain when a person experiences sexual assault or violence. It is crucial information to empower survivors with knowledge, which can help them to understand the severe neurological disorders common to rape and sexual assault victims. Without this understanding, it is possible for a survivor to live a lifetime stuck in trauma and coping daily with countless unhealthy physical and emotional issues. This can be life-saving education for someone. Thank you for sharing this episode with survivors and any person who has a survivor in their life. It is my honor and privilege to welcome Dr. Patricia Riesick to Open Stance. Welcome. How's it going today? It's good. Good. Awesome. Thanks for being here. You are an expert globally on post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD. One of the things that just hits me is that we can't solve a problem when we don't know what the problem is. Could you give us an indication of what actually happens in our brain when we experience a traumatic event like a sexual assault? Well, there's several different possibilities. So I'll start with a basic one, which is called the fight, flight, freeze response. Um, When Almost everybody has experienced it at some time or another. When you have an almost car accident, you get that rush of adrenaline and your heart starts pounding and you, you, you might almost feel sick to your stomach because all the blood leaves your stomach or your brain or whatever. Um, so no, most people know what that feels like. But the problem is, is that um, when you are in a sexual assault situation, you can't fight or freeze. You're stuck there with it. Um, so what's happening is that your brain picks up that you're in danger and it sends out all these, what are called neurotransmitters. And it does several things to try to get you to be able to fight or freeze. And what it's doing is sending all the blood out to your hands and feet, which is where you need it to fight or free, <laughs> to fight or flee. Um, but in the meantime, it's also taking it away from unnecessary functions. The blood leaves your stomach. You don't need to be digesting your food if you're about to die. The blood leaves your the upper part of your brain because you don't need to be thinking about your philosophy of life. So your heart is pounding, you're breathing hard, and you're having this reaction. 
that's called the fight flight reaction. And there's an interesting feedback loop in the brain. Um, when you recognize you're in danger, there's a part in your brain called the amygdala. And that's what triggers all the, the, the emotional spot response, the fear or anger. Um, when we have people in the military who are trained to fight rather than flee, they're going to have a fight response. And it's just automatic, which is why so many of them get into trouble with fighting and so forth. Um, most young women haven't been taught to fight, so they're going to have a fl flight response. Um, and that's what we focused an awful lot with, with the rape victims is when they were having a fear response and they recognize they're in danger, they're going to have that response. Now, once the, once the danger is over, let's say you don't have the car accident, your brain doesn't totally turn off and the frontal part of your brain says, okay, I'm not in danger anymore. And things, and it sends messages to calm everything back down again. So that would be a normal response. The problem is when you have one of these really big events, like um, a, a major trauma, like sexual assault or, or witnessing some horrible thing happening, um, you're going to have this big, strong response. And then anything that reminds you of it afterwards, is going to trigger that response, that fight flight response. So you see somebody who looks like the assailant, you, it's dark out, all of a sudden you're remembering it again. It takes sometimes months, just even under normal circumstances to get everything to calm back down again. You have flashbacks, you can have nightmares about it. You'd have to find a place in your brain to put it. And if you have been believing all your life that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, um, which is what we call the just world belief, there's no place to put this because you've been thinking I'm a good person, this horrible thing happens. And so you may distort um, what you think about the event in order to keep that just world belief intact. And you do that because it, it gives you a sense of prediction and control. If you think, oh, I can take care of myself, I can control my world, um, and I'm a good person, so bad things aren't going to happen to me. But wham, when something bad happens, something's got to give. So there's also a cognitive component to this. But in the meantime, you've got these, this fight-flight response going on, and you're going to have... Um, also along with that, um, a matching of those cues and they can spread. So other things start to trigger that response. And then unfortunately what happens is what kicks in, you have you know, strong emotions, you have thoughts that you immediately think about, well, why did this happen? Which is what I just said, I must, I must have done something wrong. Um, this must be my fault. I should have been able to prevent it or something like that. Um, and you have this, you know, this physiological arousal along with the, the strong emotions, the thoughts, re-experiencing symptoms, because your brain is trying to get you to find a place to put it. Um, and then what happens to people who end up with PTSD is they don't go through natural recovery, they get stuck. Because maybe there's nobody in their life that they can talk to about it, or they have a prior trauma history. Maybe they've had uh, abuse as a child or something. And, or people are just saying, you know, get over it. You know, you've been reacting for a couple of weeks now. Why aren't you over it by now? And so you start to try to squelch it. And so people then kick into avoidance. And that's one of the major symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder that actually maintains it. 
Um, so if you avoid thinking about it, and if you avoid um, reminders of it, so you don't go out after dark, or you don't leave your house, or you don't do things that you used to do, you think to yourself, now I'm safe. Um, so you don't go out and learn that it wasn't the dark that attacked you, it was a person who attacked you, or it's not parties that attack you, or going out with friends that attack you, or being in a bar, or wearing a short skirt, or wherever it happens to be. Um, that it was a particular person who chose on that particular day to do that particular thing, looked around, thought he could get away with it, and so he did it. That's one person who decided to do that. Um, but you don't learn any different if you're avoiding. So every time you start to feel fear, if you avoid, then you start to calm down and you go, dodge that bullet, um, I'm safe. And so it, it reinforces the whole avoidance thing. So people will do almost anything to avoid. Um, they will be the busiest people on earth. Some of the some of the women I've worked with are so busy. They're going to school. They're caring, taking two jobs, raising children, being the coach of everything. They take every time somebody wants to volunteer at school, they do the volunteering. Um, Just so they don't think about it. Exactly. So they don't think about it, um, and so they don't have to think about it. We see a lot of people coming in upon retirement. All of a sudden, because it's it, quiet time. Yeah, you've got quiet time. The other time it happens is when people start to fall asleep at night or when they're sick or when something slows them down. But for some reason, I'm sure the pandemic has brought up symptoms in some people because all of a sudden they were at home when they hadn't been. Um, so what happens then is it comes back at you and you may have to find other ways to avoid. Some people drink, some people um, do self-harm things. Um, if so you cut if you cut yourself, that's going to trigger endorphins in your brain, and that's going to cut. That's going to trigger a whole different set of brain activity, which is much like dissociation, which is another thing I was going to talk about. Um, I said fight, flight, freeze. So fight and flight are two responses, and then you also come up with something called dissociation, which you hear about, which again. Yeah. We don't really know what it means because we haven't studied it. So what, what is the dissociation? Is that the well, response when fear and flight are not available, when you can't get away, when you can't get right. out of the situation? And that's particularly the case when you're young, small, you know, if you're abused as a child a lot, you learn to dissociate because fight and flight, fight and flight are not available and there's no way to get away. It, or if it happens repeatedly to you, um, in domestic violence um, situations where you just literally cannot get away. Your body then goes into the survival response. And when that happens, your brain sends out a whole different set of transmitters and shuts everything down, brings the blood back to the core so you don't bleed out, um, brings the, um, the, instead of having your heart racing, your heart actually your heart rate actually drops. Um, we saw this back in the in the early 90s when I was doing psychophysiological research. We had a group of rape victims who came in um, and some were high dissociators and some were not. And the, the, those who didn't dissociate during the event, they had a big anxiety response when we asked them to talk about their event for about five minutes. You know, of course we did a baseline. We had them talk about something neutral and then we had them talk about the trauma for about five minutes. Those who were dissociators, the non-dissociators, their heart rate and skin conductance went sky high. 
and then it slowly came back down. Those who were dissociators, their skin conductance and heart rate dropped. In other words, their heart rate got very slow. Whole different set of, of neurotransmitters are happening when you dissociate. And the endorphins, the painkillers in your head also kick in. So, and that's why people, especially people who've been injured, they, they kind of learn that if you feel physical pain, you don't feel the mental pain because your brain shuts it all down. That's so key. So that is why cutting becomes such a common behavioral issue on the back of assaults or trauma because yeah. it kills the pain. It's an anesthetic of, su of some type. Yeah. And I've heard people say, oh, I'm doing it uh, to punish myself, but that's not really the function. And what happens, they learn through pain that that's going to shut down this pain. And, and I've had people actually say this pain hurts less than this pain. Do you think a survivor knows that? Do you think a person, I, I know it's so common that cutting is a behavioral, um, is a physical thing that we do, but uh, I haven't experienced it, but it, do, do survivors know that that's what's happening or how do they get to that point? Well, I, they get to that point through experience, you know, they got injured, you know, um, people who get headaches, well, will they don't intentionally do it, but that becomes an avoidance. So every time they're reminded of the trauma, they'll get a headache and it'll distract them from the trauma or a stomach ache, it'll distract them from, you know, the reminder of the trauma and helps them shut it down. Um, so it, there's some very clever ways that people inadvertently avoid. Some people intentionally avoid and they know they're avoiding and they're saying, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with it. Everybody's telling me to get on with my life. And if that doesn't work, they'll use drugs or alcohol or something harmful, or they'll do a high level of avoidance, which is being the busiest person on earth. Um, but all those things are going to try to, to shut down the memory so you don't have to deal with it. So that, that leads to a really important piece of all of this is how do we get out of this? And so we're talking about um, the results and the behavioral issues and the unhealthy behaviors emotionally and physically. So then we, then how do we get out? So we have to understand that there's actually this physiological, neurological um, function going on in our brains and in our bodies to help protect us. So mm -hmm. what's the next step in just addressing, I guess we recognize the symptoms, number one. So you've just mentioned uh, quite a few symptoms and, and behaviors that mm -hmm. um, are unhealthy. And then but in terms of, okay, how do we sleep again? How do we concentrate again? How do we release the fear and the anger? How do we get unstuck from these unhealthy memories that we're just locked in in our daily lives? So where do we progress once we've recognized the symptoms to look at a path um, towards healing? Well, let me talk about the other piece of this before we get into the solutions. Yeah. Um, because there's some people who didn't feel fear. I've had rape victims who said, I knew my husband wasn't going to kill me, but what he did was so humiliating. Exactly. You know, I felt so degraded. When we look at them and they've actually done brain studies now, when we have people who had danger responses, they had a fight flight response. When they didn't have a danger situation, they had a whole different response. It was a whole different part of their brain. It's in the autobiographical part of the brain. And so what happens is, unfortunately, they come to the wrong conclusions. 
And so they end up avoiding for different reasons. And they end up rethinking it for the wrong reasons because what they're saying to themselves doesn't work. Um, you know, from the time you're born to the time you die, you're always taking in information. And, you know, when you're really little, it's pretty simple information. You know, every, every animal is a cat because that's all the animals you know. And then quickly your parents are teaching you dog and, and cow and all these kinds of things. And you start differentiating them or that this is a chair and that's a couch and that's a bench. And so in the first few years of life, you, you learn to use language to describe things. One of the things that we all learn is that just world belief. And I'm saying all because our parents teach it to us, our teachers teach us, our religions teach it. They all say, because small children can't differentiate on a continuum, they'll say, if you do, if you misbehave, you're gonna get into trouble. And if you behave, everything's gonna turn out okay. And so, you think there's only two categories, behaving and misbehaving. And never mind if you believe in God or something that's supposed to be looking after you. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that may play a role in it. Some people don't have, they still have the just world, even if they don't have a religious belief about it, because parents don't say, well, if you misbehave, you might or might not get into trouble. Yeah. Um, or that it always works out when you behave. They, you know, they just don't, people don't teach us that. We learn it you know, over a period of time as we see things happening to other people and say, they were a really nice person. Why did that horrible thing happen to them? And we stop kind of believing in the just world or thinking that um, maybe they didn't do anything wrong. But then if something bad happens to you, you tend to revert because you still have that idea in your head. And so I've never met anybody in their life that anywhere. It's not just rape victims or, or sexual assault or combat or anybody else who hasn't said, in fact, I do this in my workshops with therapists. I'll say, is, any, is there anybody in the room who's never said, why me? And not a hand will go up. Sure. As soon as you say, why me? You've owned the just world belief. Why not you? <laughs> you know, If you're looking for a reason why something bad happened to you, it's because, well, that's life. Um, why not you? Um, so the problem is, is that people want to predict and control. And so they want to believe that they must've done something wrong. They don't look at the perpetrator. They don't look at the, at the causes of what happened. They look to themselves typically. And so what happens is that they're saying, I must've done something wrong. It's my fault. I should have done this. I should have saved that person. If only I had been quicker, if I didn't freeze, there is a different kind of freeze, which happens right at the beginning. And that's not dissociation, that's orienting. It's like, what's going on here? Yep. But people will blame themselves if they froze for a second and they didn't even know what was going on. Um, but they'll say, I froze and I didn't run back in and save that person or my cat or whatever. Um, so um, people tend to blame themselves. They tend to have that trying to make the world just again thing. But if you have enough bad things happen, you or you're raised to think that it, things are always your fault. Sometimes parents are emotionally abusive and they'll say, this is all your fault. This is all your fault. You make me hit you. Um, and so they'll grow up with negative beliefs. And so if they have a trauma happen, it fits right in those negative beliefs. And this is just more proof that they're a bad person or that they're always a failure or whatever it happens to be. Okay. So some of this is all about cognition and thinking. And so if, even if it isn't a danger situation, 
it may be a self-blame or a um, degrading or humiliating situation. And you may say, I must have done something to deserve this. Um, that's a hard thing to think about. And you have strong emotions with that too, not just fear, but you can have strong emotions that go with any of those kinds of um, uh, uh, thoughts. And so you tend to push those away as well. And you tend to avoid thinking about it. You tend to not want to feel those strong feelings because they're horrible. And you tend to, to push the memories away and not deal with them. And that can go on forever. Um, the example that I'll use, and this will get you to kind of the, your solution part. If you are in a good environment where people are supportive of you and they know that this trauma has happened to you and they're encouraging you to feel your feelings and so forth, it's kind of like a, a fire in the fireplace or you know, a campfire that you've been burning. You sit there and like emotions, a fire has heat. It has an energy to it. It, um, you, you gotta stay, you wanna stay a little bit away from it. But if you just sit there and, and watch it and feel that heat and let it run its course, then it burns down and becomes ashes. And that's what we want trauma survivors to do. That's amazing, what a great analogy. The problem is, is if they start throwing thought logs on that fire, <laughs> like- We do. <laughs> all my fault. I should have done something different. I should have, would have, could have. Um, my mother says it's all my fault. You know, you could, that, that's why you can have it the rest of your life. And, and in fact, it, it can become an even bigger fire. It can be a giant bonfire um, because you're, you're, you're continually throwing those thought logs on the fire whenever you're reminded of it. So what, what do we have to do? Take we have to take logs and then burn it down. <laughs> exactly. It yeah. Yeah. You got to take away the thought logs. And we do that with cognitive therapy, which means we help them look at what have you been saying to yourself all this time? Can you just Why cognitive therapy? It's something just quickly a definition when you, when you see cognitive, what, what does that, that mean? Thinking. That just means thinking. Brain, understanding. Yeah. If you change your thoughts, your emotions are gonna change. Like if somebody says they're gonna call you at six o'clock and they don't call you at six o'clock and you say to that yourself, oh, they must hate me. Now, how are you gonna feel? Pretty lousy. Yeah, pretty lousy. So you finally catch up with them and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't call you. My, my phone died, I forgot to charge it. Now, what do you feel? Oh, okay. No yeah. problem. It changes immediately. Yeah, it changes immediately, doesn't it? So you change your thought, your feelings change. Okay. So if you've been saying it's all my fault, it's all my fault, I should have done something different. And then we as, a, as therapists go in and, and, and have them actually look at not going through all the gory details of the trauma, but like, what, are we, what were you saying to yourself about it? Why do you think it happened? And they're saying, well, I should have done this or I should have done that. It's my fault. I shouldn't have had a drink, whatever it is. And then we go back in and, and ask them a whole lot of questions <laughs> like, well, have you ever had a drink and not had it happen? Um, were you, the friends who are with you, had they been drinking? Oh, they were. And they were all attacked also. Um, yeah. You know, how many days did you walk down that street and nothing happened? Um, so 
you know, we help them think through in that particular context. It wasn't the street, it wasn't the drink, it was the perpetrator who premeditated this event, even if briefly, they, maybe they were premeditating that they were going to do something to somebody and it just happened to be you. Um, and yeah, and that's a really incredible piece for survivors. Again, an audience of people that um, don't understand any of this, that um, such a big fear is going into therapy. Therapy is scary for people um, on all kinds of levels, never mind dealing with sexual assault. And that first big fear of having to retell your story is so scary and so overwhelming that in many cases, it's just a reason and an obstacle that we don't get to therapy in the first place. But to hear you say from such a professional and medical standpoint that therapy yeah, is almost anti-retelling your story and re-victimizing a survivor. It's is so specific about your thought patterns, which is a much more manageable way to um, digest that and, and to consider that as an option and, and get over the hurdle of receiving treatment as part of a healing process. Well, there are therapies that do have you go through the event. Uh, prolonged exposure has you go through the event and over and over and over again until it, the fire burns out. <laughs> so you're feeling your natural emotions about it. Um, and then it, that helps you then then think about it differently. Um, but with cognitive processing therapy, you're not going through the, the details. In fact, um, one of my colleagues, Kate Chard, who's one of my co-authors, bet her other therapists in her clinic that she could do CPT without ever knowing what the trauma was. And they said, oh, no, you'd have to know what the trauma is. And she said, no, betcha. So the next client that came in, she... Um, said, don't tell me about your trauma is, let's just talk about the reasons why you think it happened. Um, and she did, you know, she do what we call Socratic questioning, which is asking them a lot of questions about the context <clears throat> and putting the whole thing. It's not just this little flash, but opening up the picture, who else was there? How big were you? How, how old were you? Did you have any options in that situation? And she didn't find out what the trauma was to the last session. Um, and it was successful? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now, and usually, just to usually. Give, just to um, interrupt for a quick second, and to give our listeners a very, uh, to give a, a scope of what you've done. Thirty-three years ago, in 1988, you developed mm -hmm. CPT. So, for everybody listening, CPT is cognitive processing therapy, and uh, Dr. Resick, you actually developed it. So, you, um, I've read that this is a highly successful evidence-based treatment used specifically in traumas like sexual assault and, um, and for military combat, correct? It's uh, been used for almost everything now. Yeah, um, it's globally recognized and I know it's been translated into seven languages already. Um, so pretty impressive to hear from your chair um, how how this is an option. And again, just going back to a basic building block for survivors that healing is possible. So to hear from you and from someone who has literally developed a treatment for PTSD, uh, PTSD uh, to sit here and to know it works and how it works as an option is, um, is, is really critical information that you're sharing. There's, um, 
I think there's a couple of other things. When I first developed it, it was a 12-session therapy because it seemed like that was a nice number. <laughs> um, what we're finding is, well, most people don't need 12 sessions. The average is about eight. Um, we started doing variable length treatment. Now, people in the military, it actually takes them longer. Uh, women and civilians, they, they, are, they do it much quicker. Um, well, isn't that encouraging to think that maybe or it's been proven that in many cases, eight sessions, and you yeah. could have a very successful treatment plan in place. Right. They didn't have all that training, in or the fight training and, and some of the brainwashing that goes on in the military. So our veterans have more trouble getting over it than civilians do because you haven't been trained to think that you should be hyper aroused all the time or that you should think in a certain way. And so um, there... I find civilians and particularly rape victims are very amenable to this treatment. Um, and, and we've been doing what we call variable length and, and you know people get over in, in five, six, seven sessions, maybe they need more. If you had a big trauma history or if you have lots of other disorders along with it, serious depression or substance abuse, of course it might take longer. Um, but if you have PTSD, you might get over it fairly quickly. Um, without, it's not, it's not that hard to treat. The trick is to stop the avoidance. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then stop and look at what have you been saying to yourself and what else, you know, what are the facts here? What's the evidence that, that, that what I've been saying to myself for the last 20 years is actually true? Right. And then, and then you know, we do CPT with a whole series of worksheets to teach people, like, what was the event? What's your thought about it? And when you think that thought, what do you feel? Now, if you thought this, what would you feel? And then we have a series of questions to help them dismantle what they've been saying to themselves. You know, what's the evidence for and against that thought? Is it just a habit that you've been saying that all this time? Are you overgeneralizing to everybody else? Or are you jumping to conclusions about what the future is going to bring? You know, like if I leave my house, a bad thing will happen. How do you know? Um, so we have them go through and start asking themselves questions and then eventually coming up and looking at their, their tendencies or patterns of thinking and then coming up with an alternative thought that they can believe in. You know, like, it wasn't my fault. I did the best that I could. Um, it's unlikely to happen again. And if a bad thing happens in my life, I can handle it. So the big question, the big issue then really is not that there aren't treatments available and not that then they are successful and healing is totally possible. It's, it's what the brain does that's so powerful to protect us that um, just sets up a massive blockade for us to recognize that we have trauma and that there are mechanisms um, creating all this turmoil in our life. And in, in so many cases, in, and I know from experience, it took seven years for something to, to unlock um, my ability to go seek some help or to actually even talk about the trauma for the first time. So um, it, just in your experience, what, what have you seen that could help survivors unlock that quicker? Or is it just recognizing and having this education so that at a younger age, um, our families and communities and schools, we're taught, uh, just going back to st uh, statistics, one in four women, one in six men in their lifetime will experience sexual assault. Um, something like one in five women that go to college 
will experience sexual assault. So the statistics are screaming at us that this education is incredibly necessary because there are people all around us every day that are going through these traumas and in many cases undiagnosed um, and people avoiding them, but the symptoms are there. And then getting from that stage to the next where there's all this help and healing available. I, I, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. The heart, it, It's much harder to get people past their avoidance than it is to treat them. I, I find myself so frustrated after, you know, 30 some years of doing this, of getting people in the door or getting them to, to get on to telehealth. Let me, I, you mentioned before we started that there's, you know, of course we're in a pandemic. So um, we immediately switched over to doing CPT with telehealth. It works just as well. We already knew that because we had already done research on it. Um, so doing telehealth and meeting with a therapist on your tablet, on your computer, on your phone, we're, we're testing out texting therapies. I mean, just taking that step um, to say, okay, I can get better, but I got to take that step. I've got to give it a shot. And if it doesn't work with the first therapist, go to a second therapist, go to a third therapist. Um, and it and makes it a lot easier going to the telehealth um, conversation right now, I find again, this is, um, it's life changing because um, in my time, this, we didn't even have computers yet, right? So none of that was available. But today for trauma survivors of sexual assault, it's an incredibly personal um, experience that to get counseling, you've got to take time off work in many cases, you have to go to an office, meet people you don't know, it's expensive. But what's happening in the world with our modern technology and the telehealth mental services available literally allows you to jump on your phone, like you said, or your computer and have therapy or counseling sessions um, over FaceTime or Zoom or whatever is um, mm -hmm. you know, your form of technology in the privacy of your own home or wherever you feel safe and highly anonymous. And as well, just the affordability. So many times you run into survivors that want help. They actually know, okay, there's help out there and I would love to try counseling. I can't afford it, hear it all the time. But now with the telemental health, the accessibility and the affordability is bringing those costs down and just the scope availability is there for survivors. So taking that information and tagging it with what your expertise is showing is how successful these treatments can be as part of an overall plan is enormous um, for people to understand. The other thing that I think that we're learning with the telehealth is suddenly we're able to reach people we couldn't reach before because you want somebody who's trained, but you know, if that meant a four hour drive, that wasn't gonna be possible. And we've had people drive two hours each way, but then, and then try to find parking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But with telehealth, we could reach all the way across the state and, and provide therapy with somebody who's a hundred miles away. Um, sure. and, or, and, that, and then that leads to consistency. So in so many cases, consistency, if you're talking about an eight week to 12 week program, for example, that consistency would probably be quite important, correct? Mm -hmm. And then the telehealth allows you 
if you if you couldn't get to an office, you were sick or just something came up, you can maintain your sessions because you have access to um, the online service. Mm -hmm. The other thing too is that we've been testing and we're doing more testing on it is doing um, CPT fast, um, doing it in a week or two. Wow. Uh, and really doing it quickly. There, there are several groups that are testing it in the US now. And in fact, I don't, I don't know if you can get the podcast, This American Life. Sure. Um, there's we're, a, we're far down under, but we we have access to everything. Okay, we have access to This American Life. There's an episode called 10 Sessions. And what happened was that a, a, um, a reporter had PTSD um, from, I believe it was from a sexual assault. And she flew across the country to uh, work with Deborah Kaysen, who has done a lot of work in the Congo and all sorts of other places, um, doing CPT in the Congo um, and in Iraq and other places. But anyway, she had interviewed her for something and she said, I want to get treated, but I've only got two weeks. So they, she recorded the whole thing and set it up in this episode. So you can actually hear the CPT happening and you can hear her reactions. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's kind of humorous at times when she said, this form looks like a, you know, something you'd get at the driver's license bureau. <laughs> but so, when then you, so when you say you're doing research, um, you're using, are you um, engaging survivors, obviously, for this research, for these? Oh, always. Um, yeah, always. Okay. So for this um, purpose, anyone listening, what if I have survivors tuning in that would love to be part of that? How do you go about um, finding your uh, finding people for these studies? Um, it used to be before we were doing the telehealth stuff, we would have to find people in our own city. So we would put ads up and, and get articles in the newspaper and flyers and this and that, but it, it's easier now to do things um, online. People look for studies. I was, um, I'll send this to you later, but Reg Nixon uh, is at Flinders University in Adelaide, and he was my postdoc for a year and a half. And so he learned to do CPT, and then he became a trainer. And he's been doing research in Adelaide, and he's got studies now with both civilians and veterans. And he's done a lot of work with rape victims, he and his students and his, his staff. Um, they have a clinic, but they're doing it all with telehealth. So it'd be possible to be in a research project um, and that just means usually filling out forms, making sure that you have PTSD when you start and how are you doing at the end of it? Um, wow. So it's it usually filling out the forms you'd wanna be filling out anyway. Um, so, I mean, that's one research project I know of already that's going on in Australia. Um, well, I'll definitely include that information in the, um, yeah, with this podcast. That's uh, one way to go about it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well. What, um, so we've covered a lot today and I'm conscious of your time. Uh, the big one, just confirming that these incredible treatments um, can provide very successful healing paths for survivors um, and avoidance being a huge obstacle and, and recognizing the symptoms um, as a starting point to, to open the door for um, potential um, therapies and counseling and, and different uh, platforms for healing. That's um, an incredible message that you've been able to share. Um, let, me, let me just finish where we started and come full circle. 
um, we started with the brain. One of the studies that we've done, and there haven't been very many where they were doing imaging because that's very expensive to do brain imaging. And um, we were curious as to whether the brain would change in that six week period when we were doing treatment. So we were doing group CPT with, um, uh, you know, one, uh, twice, we were doing it twice a week for six weeks. They did brain imaging before and they did brain imaging after the brain changed. Physically um, changes. Physically changed in, in six week period. So the, the, those changes that they, they had all that time started changing back. So you're not stuck with your brain. Um, the that brain can change. Is awesome. Yeah. What a great message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's truly yeah. life-saving, really. Well, um, do you listen to music, Dr. Resick? Sure. Yeah. So I love my music and I always go for a run before my podcast. So inspiration comes to me. I just play random playlists and I know that something in the universe is going to send me something for the day. And today, the song that um, just hit me was by Pink, you know, Pink? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, her song, All I Know So Far. And there was a lyric in it, which says, do you, um, I wish someone would have told me that this life is ours to choose. No one's handing you the keys or a book with all the rules. And it was so appropriate for today because number one, um, again, going back to why I, invited you here because I needed someone like you. I needed this information. I needed to know that my brain could go back to normal after experiencing sexual assault. And I know I'm here today to give this information to so many people that need it. And you have been the one to, um, from, a, from a medical and a scientific and an expert chair, um, validate um, that it is possible um, and in her song, No One's Handing Us the Keys, well, you are actually handing so many people the keys today. And it really resonated with me that these are keys and they're life-saving. And this education that it starts in our brain, there are real problems. They're severe. We're not crazy. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing's made up. Um, understanding that from your perspective, it's just incredible. And then that has this incredible chain reaction into opening the doors of what's possible once you recognize that this is a real situation and very serious. Um, and, and then tagging on to that so much positive information um, in terms of the healings possible and treatments of many kinds, including yours, CPT, are available and working and successful. So um, thank you for being here. It, it's phenomenal that you've taken your time, your energy, and sharing this with people that it's going to make such an impact and have influence um, profoundly to places I don't even know yet. Well, I'm happy to have you spread the word um, that that healing is possible and that they can get help um, and they can help themselves. Um, so amazing. Well, um, I graduated from Duke 28 years ago and I haven't been back. So one of my bucket list items is to get back there in the near future. So when I do make that trip, I'll be looking you up. Uh, okay. <laughs> 
the psychiatry department, I was there. I had one class at Duke, and when I got a big fat C minus, <laughs> my first term, I asked my academic advisor, "Oh God, what's going on?" And he said, "Well, you're you're on the tennis team. You're never in class. Um, this is probably not the uh, major for you, even though it's what I wanted to do, and I was fascinated by it." Um, I ended up going political science because I could get people's notes and, and skip classes. <laughs> but here we are full circle. Um, it's been a complete honor and privilege um, to have you and to know you now. And um, thank you again on behalf of many for your time and, and your expertise. Thank you. So in my skin, I know your silence, it disappears never, ever.